and welcome to the first edition of Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News, a news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account and goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories the corporate media doesn't want you to see. My name's Alan McLeod. And I'm Whitney Webb, and together we are going to not only discuss and analyze the big stories that the government and corporations want swept under the rug, but also revisit past events that have shaped our world but that the media has helped to hide for decades. Let's get straight into some of Mint Press's top stories from the past week. Venezuela walks from OAS as body violates charter in support of US-backed coup. In a bid to prop up its wilting coup attempt, the US-dominated Organization of American States has chosen to recognize the US-backed and self-appointed president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido's representative to the OAS. Venezuela had formally decided to leave the organization in April 2017 and is slated to leave for good this month claiming it was an empty shell that has violated its own rules. We are leaving and never coming back, declared as Bina Marin, the Maduro government's representative. The last measure by the OAS is, in Mint Press contributor Anya Parampil's estimation, a last-minute attempt to kick Venezuela's elected government one last time before it heads out the door. The OAS decision was highly controversial in Latin America, with Mexican ambassador Jorge Lomonaco, warning that it set a dangerous precedent, while Bolivian President Evo Morales denounced the OAS as the American Ministry of Colonies. This idea was not helped by US Representative John Bolton invoking the 200-year-old Monroe Doctrine, which states that the US can intervene in any country in the Western Hemisphere, its backyard. This announcement, as Mint Press News reported this week, was described by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov as an insult to the people of Latin America, and is sure to increase tensions between the two nuclear powers. You know, I really found Bolton's invocation of the Monroe Doctrine really troubling, but, you know, not surprising given that he has also recently called the Western Hemisphere, quote, our hemisphere, meaning the U.S.'s exclusive hemisphere. Um, You know, but Bolton's mindset is really not uncommon at all in the Washington establishment today, just as it was 200 years ago when the Monroe Doctrine was formed. And, you know, this sort of mindset has really uh, long informed U.S. policy in Latin America and was the basis um, for, for, you know, everything from the coup that installed Pinochet in Chile, um, its support for dictatorships like that which ruled Argentina in the early 1980s, the arming of the Contras in Nicaragua, uh, the U.S.'s role in the creation of, uh, and perpetuation you know, of a, of a right-wing narco state in Colombia, you know, all these acts that have resulted in extremely high body counts in nearly every country in Latin America, you know, the Monroe Doctrine and its and what's followed, you know, are really responsible for that um, to a significant degree. So it's really worth pointing out, too, that in recent years, you know, such U.S. meddling in Latin America has has taken a more covert turn after all the, uh, you know, military coups and whatnot that the U.S. backed in prior decades. And this has meant, you know, less... Um, Less focus on proxy war and military coups and more focus on, you know, what I would call diplomatic coups, such as that which ousted uh, Dilma Rousseff in Brazil or um, or Fernando Lugo in, in Paraguay. And, you know, these co- uh, covert coups um, have really been aided by the OAS, which has been used consistently to give sort of this sheen of legitimacy to governments removed from power with the U.S.'s blessing and sort of give these uh, diplomatic coups, um, you know, legitimacy. So the, the OAS is, is you know, 
uh, as Morales alluded to um, in, in what you stated earlier, uh, you know, well known in Latin America to be largely U.S. dominated and its attempts to legitimize you know, this failing U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela is really just a related example of, of how the OAS, you know, works as a collaborator um, and, and sort of a cover for U.S. meddling in Latin American countries. Yeah, sure. I mean, if I were writing a book, I'd probably chapter this, uh, you know, title this chapter, The Empire Strikes Back, in terms of Latin America. So, for, you know, 10 years we saw in the early 2000s this growth of the left, of this anti-imperialist left with uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela Evo Morales in Bolivia, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, uh, the PT in Brazil, all sorts of governments coming to power. But over the last uh, few years, we've really seen the US uh, kick it into overdrive in terms of pushing these soft coups. In fact, uh, when, you, when they were trying to justify the congressional budget uh, for the OAS uh, to uh, Washington, they actually said in the document that the OAS is a crucial uh, uh, provides a crucial role in countering uh, nationalist states like Venezuela. But it seems that the coup is really failing. I mean, uh, Juan Guaido promised Mike Pence, we know from an Argentinian document uh, published by an Argentinian uh, newspaper, that he said that there would be 50% of the military would immediately rebel. But even if we're being very charitable, it seems that only about 0.1% has. And Guaido was recently ejected from a working class area in Caracas by a mob who were kicking his uh, motorcade out and they had to... Uh, yeah, they were they were really angry, huh? <laughs> yeah, they had to beat a very quick retreat, didn't they? Yeah, I think that's really telling of, of how little support, you know, Juan Guaido has in, has in Venezuela. I mean, um, I, as was known at the time when he, you know, initiated his, his parallel presidency, you know, over 80% of Venezuelans had never even heard of the guy. And what, obviously they've heard of him now, but I really don't think most people in Venezuela would have a good opinion of him. And obviously, as we've seen from those videos, of him trying to go into, you know, working class neighborhoods, leaving, you know, the bubble of, of really wealthy, upper class and elitist um, Caracas neighborhoods where a lot of the opposition that he's a part of, um, you know, as yeah. centered really shows... Um, that he doesn't have the support of the people, and he also doesn't really have, you know, much support in, in, in other ways, too, just like, as you mentioned, with with the military. I mean, he just really hasn't, doesn't have that kind of support, and what we've seen in recent days is that Juan Guaido is really turning to, you know, uh, authoring editorials in Bloomberg and, pace, and places <laughs> like that, trying to convince the, the international community, you know, to, to back his presidency that, has no power and really no legitimacy besides what the U.S. is attempting to give it um, sure. in terms of, you know, U.S. Uh, Venezuelan assets in the U.S. and the U.K. So I think we're just going to... Um, what, what actually is happening here is that even though the OAS is continuing to act as you know, um, a, a U.S. collaborator in, in, in meddling and stuff like that. It's really backfiring and really showing that, um, you know, as this coup in Venezuela fails, that the, the OAS is really, you know, showing that it doesn't really have the legitimacy it used to command, you know, a few, even a few years ago with the international community. It's really, you know, shown itself to be, you know, as, as Evo Morales called it, you know, a, um, you know, a, a, an organization of, of colonies. I mean, that's really what um, it's become. And, it, and it's it's pretty clear that um, that's what it's doing now and most likely what it will continue to do in the near future. It really is ramping up the uh, tensions, though, between the U.S. and other international actors, particularly Russia. I mean, Russia, a few months ago, landed a military plane on a Venezuelan airbase, and now it's sent a small detachment of troops to the country in order to try and deter some sort of either military coup or U.S. invasion, which John Bolton 
uh, I think, in my opinion, deliberately let slip that the U.S. was planning. And, you know, we've seen the U.S. and Russia come almost to blows in Ukraine. We've seen the U.S. bombing a Russian-manned air base in Syria. These are the two biggest nuclear powers in the world. And it just seems absolutely crazy. It's such folly for the U.S. to try and risk global annihilation over Venezuela. Well, I think the idea too, and the and the method of the U.S.'s madness here is to sort of have Russia embroiled in proxy, you know, proxy wars with the U.S. and regions all over the world, including on its border in Ukraine, including in Latin America, and including in the Middle East, right? Yeah. Um, so I think this is just really, um, you know, for for the neocons and people like them that that you know want a new Cold War, Cold War, and want a, a new war with Russia, you know, if you if you make more proxy war battlefields that inevitably increase tensions between the U.S. and Russia, one of the, I guess they're assuming that one of them will have to break at some point and lead, you know, to to conflict in some sense, which is you know. Um, Seems to be what's happening, in my opinion, is and is really, really troubling. Yeah. But um, speaking of the Middle East, um, that takes us to our next headline. Um, going back to Israel, Israel had elections la- uh, last week, and um, a few stories were um, online at MedPrints about that. One of them, uh, titled, Well-known set- uh, Zionist settler activist sees more land grabs and a greater Israel is a given. So not long after, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced that he would begin annexing Palestine's West Bank upon his now confirmed re-election, well-known and controversial Israeli settler activist Daniela Weiss uh, was interviewed by Haaretz columnist Bradley Burstyn. Uh, Burstyn personally opposes settlements. Uh, Weiss told Burstyn that the annexation of not just the West Bank, but southern Lebanon, as well as parts of Syria, Iraq, and Iran, were in Israel's future. Willingly, but not necessarily inaccurately, Vice also asserted that in Israel, this, this belief is not extreme and that, quote, many people believe it. Weiss also ex- asserted that Israeli, Israeli settler expansion was the only way to continue Zionism. So does Israel's recent election support Vice's claim that her views are increasingly mainstream in Israeli society? So going on from there, um, we, uh, you know, and speaking of Israel's elections, that election was also held last Tuesday in a highly contested race described by many observers as the country's darkest and dirtiest election in recent memory. And while the elections themselves and commentaries like those made by Daniela Weiss uh, captured international attention, Mint Press, contribu- uh, Mint Press contributor uh, Miko Pellet pointed out, the disturbing coincidence that the date of Israel's elections uh, also coincided with the 71st anniversary of the Deir Yassin massacre, which took place on uh, on April 9th of 1948. And that massacre, which is, in my opinion, one of the most infamous uh, that occurred during Israel's so-called War of Independence, um, saw Palestinian men, women, and children, including 30 babies killed, many of them in their homes or on the street by the Irgun, uh, which is a Zionist paramilitary force. Um, most of the dead, they burned on the street. Uh, they rounded up and paraded the survivors through the streets of Jerusalem. Irgun's, uh, Irgun's leader at the time, Minachem Begin, uh, he would later describe civilian massacres as a, quote, splendid little tactic. Um, he later became an, a prime minister of Israel. He also founded the precursor to today's Likud party, which, of course, is the party that won last week's Israel elections and is also the party of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. After the Deir Yassin massacre, Irgun members who had recorded the screams of those who had been slaughtered that day drove around to other Palestinian towns and villages. They blasted the recordings from speakers attached to the roof of their cars in an act of intimidation that helped lead to thousands upon thousands of Palestinians 
voluntarily fleeing their homes and country, a fear of their town being the next Dear Yassin. As Pellet notes in his article, uh, remember Dear Yassin was often used by Zionists uh, Zionist as a threat to Palestinians during this time. And Pellet also states in his article that while there is no way to know if this coincidence between Dear Yassin and, and Israel's elections this year was intentional, its symbolism is nonetheless glaring, given that both presidential candidates um, Benny Gatz and Benjamin Netanyahu, with Netanyahu, of course, winning. They both had built their campaigns around increasing Palestinian misery and redoubling their efforts to wipe the country off the map. Wow, yeah. I mean, to be honest, the first thing that I think about is, you know, the Israelis could have chosen any day of the year on the calendar to hold their election, and it would have been an anniversary of some massacre of Palestinians, frankly. I mean, right. this is the... <laughs> This is the fifth, uh, you know, re-election for Netanyahu, and the Israeli public are clearly sending a strong message saying that this is the Israel they want to live in. But, uh, you know, none of the major candidates were really opposing Netanyahu's uh, on, the, on the settlements, for sure. I mean, Benny Gatz was uh, just as uh, pro-settlement as, as uh, Netanyahu. And the traditional leftist parties were really smashed at the elections. I mean, Labour got... Some of them didn't victory. even run, I think. I think one of the most left candidates um, just chose not to even run because her polling numbers were so low that she didn't even see a point in it, which oh, is, you know, yeah. really telling. The Arab parties did really badly as well, but it should be said that they're blocks from ever, you know being members of the government, they can only be in the opposition. Right. Well, there it's also important to point out that there were several Arab politicians and parties that Netanyahu's government, prior to the elections, blocked from participating. And there was also, um, you know, efforts among significant portions of um, the Palestinian, uh, Israeli-Palestinian population uh, to boycott the elections, right? So, um, you know, that, in my opinion, would be part of what explains the low layer um you know, the low Arab turnout in Israeli elections. The other thing being, of course, Netanyahu's um, voter intimidation tactics. Um, we know for a fact that uh, the Likud, uh, Likud party sent in people to intimidate people uh, at, at, you know, in, in Arab uh, majority neighborhoods and polling stations uh, with hidden cameras and things like that, um, which is, you know, just straight out of the Jim Crow playbook um, and really troubling to see. But, you know, explains, you know, what this type of, um, you know, what Israel is becoming and what most Israelis, as evidenced by this elections, want Israel to become, which is an ethnostate. Sure. Boy, that's a, that's a, a very, um, you know, downer to go out on. But uh, I think we should move on to the next story, right? Sure. <laughs> okay. After Assange's arrest, Ecuador's creep towards authoritarianism becomes a sprint. Our top story of the week, which will be discussed in our, our next segment, is the arrest of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. However, before getting to that, uh, we'll turn to Ecuador first and how, in the hours and days after Assange's arrest, the government of Lenin Moreno has made a series of troubling moves to signal that Moreno's authoritarian tendencies are rapidly becoming more pronounced following his decision to suspend Assange's Ecuadorian citizenship and, remo and revoke his uh, asylum. Just hours after Assange was arrested in Ecuador's embassy, Ecuadorian authorities detained Ola Bini, a Swedish software programmer and a privacy advocate who had been living in Ecuador for around five years. The government had falsely uh, charged that Bini um, is, an, uh, is an employee of WikiLeaks, which he is not, though he is a personal friend of Julian Assange, which appears to explain why he was targeted. Bini was sentenced to 90 days of pre-trial detention at a hearing 
held close to midnight on a Thursday for allegedly being involved in an effort to blackmail Moreno's government. The only evidence Moreno's government has provided of such a presence is uh, electronic devices in in Binny's residence, which any software developer would obviously have in their home. And the fact that Binny has travelled abroad several times over the past few years shouldn't uh, arouse suspicion. Binny has last uh, since been uh, labelled a political prisoner by both lawyers in Ecuador and abroad. After Binny's arrest, Ecuador detained two protesters on Friday and sentenced them to 50 hours of community service and to publicly issue an apology to Moreno for protesting against his government. Later, the two protesters told a journalist that Moreno's Ecuador had become a dictatorship and that freedom of speech no longer existed in the country. That same day, Ecuadorian uh, lawyer Viviana Paredes announced that she had been tipped off that Moreno's government was seeking to investigate her for her appearance on his 2012 panel alongside Assange's mother, Christine, where she argued in favour of granting the journalist asylum. Paredes has claimed that the investigation is politically motivated and meant to intimidate her. Then, over the weekend, we saw several high-profile Correistas, or allies of former Ecuadorian President Rafael Correo, uh, were threatened in Ecuador, including a congresswoman and former foreign minister and former defense minister Ricardo Patino. Patino uploaded a video to Twitter on Saturday of him and his wife being pursued in an act of intimidation by a government vehicle lacking a license plate. Just days before, Patino had stated on Ecuadorian radio that Moreno's decision to revoke Assange's asylum was done in exchange for the IMF loan deal that Ecuador finalised this month. Patino was also recently accused without evidence by Moreno's government of conspiring against the current president. And not only that, but former Ecuadorian President Rafael Correo has been targeted as Facebook deleted his page, which had over 1.5 million likes. Correa has vocally and totally condemned the decision to revoke Assange's asylum and has been using his page to bring to attention the INA papers scandal that exposed corruption uh, of Moreno and his family since uh, he became Ecuador's president in May 2017. Right, so what's going on in Ecuador right now um, in, in the days and um, since Assange, uh, you know, Assange was arrested in, in London and the Ecuadorian embassy is, is a continuation and, you know, uh, a speeding up of, of trends that we've seen since Moreno's first um, first year in office, really. Um, let's point out, for example, that um, not long into his presidency, Moreno oversaw the imprisonment of the man who was actually his vice president at the time and had been vice president um, uh, under Rafael Correa on his last term as well, um, Jorge Glass. Jorge Glass was put in prison um, for alleged involvement in a corruption scandal uh, with a Brazilian company. And actually Moreno at the time had used Glass's imprisonment and the charges against him to sort of build himself up as this you know, supposed anti-corruption crusader which, of course, is an image that has really been severely undercut following the revelations of this INA paper scandal, this corruption scandal about his personal finances. Um, it's worth pointing out also that Glass has developed several health conditions while in prison. He also went on hunger strike last year for, I think, around 30 days, um, it was, in protests of poor conditions and a lack of access to health care. At one point, he had a health scare that was so severe, um, the prison sent him to a hospital, but Moreno's government prevented him from being treated. So basically, he was sent to the hospital, uh, waited there, wasn't treated, and then was sent back uh, to prison. 
And so Glass and, and his family have maintained from the very beginning the charges against Glass are political in nature and that his continued poor treatment in prison is, is a form of, quote, political revenge. Um, and also, uh, let's keep in mind, too, that as Glass has been imprisoned, uh, Glass is serving a six-year sentence, by the way, um, uh, there have been efforts by Moreno's government also to seek the imprisonment of Rafael Correa early on in Moreno's administration. He passed, he oversaw the passage of a law that would have prevented Correa from running for re-election again in the future, um, which Correa had stated that he had planned to do at some point. Um, but beyond that, Moreno also um, oversaw an Ecuadorian judge who issued a warrant for Correa's arrest, I believe it was last year, um, in, in an effort to have Correa put in, uh, extradited from Belgium, where Correa is currently living, sent back to Ecuador and have him be uh, put in preventative detention in prison for his alleged involvement in a 2012 kidnapping plot. Um, you know, but there was no evidence provided of Korea's involvement of this, which obviously Korea himself pointed out. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, largely explains why the, the effort to extradite him from Belgium was, was unsuccessful and Korea is still living in Belgium, but obviously because of that persecution, unable to return to Ecuador, which has led a lot of people to speculate that that sort of warrant, in addition to the law that Moreno had overseen earlier, was meant at preventing any sort of political comeback. Um, for Korea and for his political movement as well. So I think what we're seeing now, especially, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, Korea's allies that are still in Ecuador being, being prosecuted, especially after, um, what's going on with Assange is that we're seeing these tendencies that have sort of, you know, been there. Um, for, for a while in the Moreno administration, they're really picking up speed and they're becoming more dangerous, um, and, and more overt. Um, and I think, you know, I would personally say that the main motive of this is distracting from, you know, this this corruption scandal, which really harms uh, the public image that Moreno was trying to build of himself as being like a nonpartisan anti-corruption crusader and is also aimed at silencing dissent as Moreno starts to move Ecuador back to close relationships with the United States. Mm. Um, and I honestly feel like, um, you know, Moreno feels like he can get away with these sort of authoritarian crackdowns because he has the U.S. behind him precisely for that. Because the U.S., um, for anyone that follows Latin American politics, um, they're currently helping to prop up several authoritarian governments in Latin America that claim to be democracies. Honduras, I would say, being the prime example. Uh, remember that the Obama State Department in 2009 oversaw um, and helped with a coup there in 2009. They tried to have elections uh, a few years ago, and there was clear election fraud there, but the U.S. prevented that from being pursued and prevented the voice of the Honduran people from being heard. Um, and you, know, you also have uh, authoritarian governments popping up really all over Latin America um, uh, in, in recent years that the U.S. has really tried to help legitimize um, and things like that. So I think Moreno feels like with the U.S. behind him, he has a cover to continue doing that sort of thing, um, which should really concern uh, not just Ecuadorians, but you know, people watching the situation from the outside as well. For sure. I mean, the U.S. always plays an important role in Latin American politics. There was actually a survey done about 15 years ago of Latin American heads of state, and they just asked them a few questions. One of them was, the U.S. ambassador has more power than I do. And a majority of the Latin American heads of state actually said, yes, I agree with that, which is amazing. But um, That's so insane, but not surprising, like you said. What's kind of ironic is Moreno always positioned himself as a disciple of Rafael Correo when he was trying to get elected in 2017. And it's worth going back to the, uh, the reasons for that, because Ecuador had like uh, about 20 years before uh, Correa came into power in 2007 of just government after government collapsing after a few months, maybe a year. And in 2007, 
Korea gets elected mostly because of his work as Minister of Finance under the previous administration where he'd successfully lobbied Congress to try to spend a lot more on uh, healthcare. And he brings an incredible uh, wave of stability over the country. Uh, he rules for 10 years, GDP goes up, loads of social indicators do really well under the Korea administration. And despite this, the media constantly attacked him uh, as a, an authoritarian, a dictator. This is both international and domestic. Right, that's absolutely, oh, sorry. Yeah, keep going. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, well, I was just going to say that, that of the, you know, the corporate media, um, in, in any Latin American country, um, is almost always dominated by, um, you know, forces that are aligned with the United States or the right wing that is aligned with the United States in those particular countries. You know, it's, it's worth pointing out too that in Latin American politics, generally speaking, of course, um, on the right wing side of things, um, it's very hard to find an anti-imperialist or nationalist right wing, uh, political party. Almost all right wing political parties, um, you know, in Chile where I live and also in other countries, you know, tout, you know, close ties with the U.S. as part of their thing. So, you know, these corporate media, and, and this is also seen in Venezuela as well, they're often, you know, aligned with, you know, U.S. interests and corporate interests, um, you know, in that are, you know, American corporate interests and corporate interests within that country itself. And they often, you know, will attack anyone that threatens those interests. In the case of, you know, Korea, you know, he, he kicked out, um, the U.S., the U.S. military from Ecuador, which I believe at the time was the U.S.'s only military base in South America. <laughs> Obviously a huge blow to, um, U.S. plans. Uh, and, and, you know, their capabilities in the region. So obviously Korea didn't make any friends that way. He also took, uh, Ecuador's economy, uh, much closer to the Chinese, uh, a major rival, uh, of the U.S., um, and things like that. So obviously, you know, if you want to gauge what's happening, um, in, in any Latin American country, it's really hard to depend on, on the media, um, because they're so aligned with one side. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and it's very difficult to understand the intricacies of Julian Assange's case if you're not really up on what's going on inside Ecuador. Actually, talking about Julian Assange, that brings us to this week's top story. WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange was arrested from inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London on April 11th. The Australian-born journalist who holds Ecuadorian citizenship has been trapped in the building since 2012, where he sought refuge there. After his arrest, he was immediately found guilty of failing to surrender to a court and was taken to Belmarsh Prison, where he faces up to 12 months in jail. However, a potentially and widely speculated upon extradition to the United States looms, something Assange himself predicted would occur if he was ever taken from the embassy. His lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, visited him in his police cell where she claimed he simply said, I told you so. Assange and WikiLeaks came to international prominence after it published the Iraq War Logs, confidential US files revealing US war crimes in the Middle East. They were leaked by Chelsea Manning, who was recently sent back to prison for refusing to testify against Assange. His treatment has been condemned by international groups, including the ACLU and the United Nations. What happened last Thursday with Assange, I just, I feel really strongly that this should be a wake-up call to concerned citizens everywhere. But it is also a really good opportunity, um, in my opinion, for distinguishing between journalists and media organizations that actually support a free press and those that do not. 
So organizations, for example, that are claiming that, you know, things like Assange is not a journalist, WikiLeaks is not a journalistic organization, you know, are saying, in my opinion, a lot more about themselves and they're saying about Assange. And, and this is really the only silver lining here, you know, is that these outlets and journalists who are attacking Assange are really showing us who they really work for. And uh, I would argue it's not the public. On the other hand, um, and I did an uh, opinion piece about uh, Assange's arrest for Mint Press. I wrote about how, you know, his arrest really marks a real uh, turning point, for, particularly for those of us, uh, regardless of whether you're on the left or right, that oppose empire, um, you know, a turning point that will definitely sooner rather than later determine what happens to other journalists. Um, but it's important to point out that this isn't just about journalists either. This is really on a, on a larger scale, you know, about uh, authoritarianism and the end of the illusion that international law carries any real weight in terms of what the U.S. hack, what the U.S. or, you know, its allies do. Um, so if the U.S. succeeds in extraditing a non-U.S. citizen for exposing its war crimes, the U.S. government will continue, I, I, I really feel, uh, to act with impunity. And, you know, we've also seen this too with uh, the U.S.'s recent moves against the International Criminal Court. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence um, that these two things are happening simultaneously. And I think um, it will become even more, the U.S. will become even more emboldened to engage in a lot of dangerous activities uh, if they succeeded in extraditing Assange. And that includes, you know, not just silencing the uh, dissent, you know, from journalists um, and, and other people or even regular people just speaking up on social media. But the U.S. would actually also be, you know, emboldened to perform actions such as those that WikiLeaks had helped to expose, you know, things like war crimes or regime change coups. You know, if they don't have anyone exposing their crimes to the public and they, and they feel like they've created this chilling effect against people who expose those crimes, you know, the, the, there's really for them an incentive to just keep doing more of that stuff. And I think that's something that should really um, concern us all and really goes, you know, far beyond press freedom, in my, in my opinion, because this whole thing with Assange has really been framed by a lot of people as just an issue of press freedom. And it's really a lot more than that. Um, I also think it has to do um, to a large degree of how we treat um people in the criminal justice system. I mean, Assange is, is innocent and look at how he's been treated, uh, not just for the, not just how he's been treated for the past seven years, but in the past few days. Um, it's just a, a really disturbing situation. Yeah, that reminds me of what John Pilger wrote in Mint Pest News uh, this week, actually. He said, the Assange arrest is a warning from history. He calls it an outrage that uh, ought to shame and anger all of us who, who fear for democratic society's uh, well-being. He said that like, Assange is a political refugee who's protected or should be protected by international law. And his crime was journalism. In other words, holding the rapacious to account, exposing their lies and empowering people all over the world with uh, the truth. And he really claims that we're living in this upside down world where the media will attack truth tellers and uh, promote conspiracy theorists. I've actually been looking a lot at the media recently and it is really remarkable the the, uh, the venom with which they treat Assange, you know. I mean, the New Yorker, for instance, extensively compared him to Harvey Weinstein, while uh, Meghan McCain on The View... Oh, said, God, uh, I hadn't seen that. <laughs> did you see Meghan McCain uh, declaring that she uh, hopes Assange rots in hell, or, you know, the Saturday Night Live, where it said, uh, Colin Jost, I think his name is, he claimed that it was so satisfying to see an internet troll get dragged out into the sunlight. Wow. I mean... Like, like I mentioned earlier, that really tells you a lot more about these media people. Uh, what they're saying about Assange really tells you about them more than it tells you about Assange, right? Um, the people that are, are willing, you know, 
Let's remember for a second, you know, what Assange has gone through in the past years, especially uh, in, in the last year. You know, the last year he's been in solitary confinement, right? Um, he's had his every move and every word recorded. He's been surveilled constantly. He can't go outside. Um, he's surrounded. He's uh, Since Moreno took office, he's been surrounded by employees, appointees of Moreno that are openly hostile to him. I mean, can you imagine anyone living in those conditions and then being violently dragged out by police and, like, looking good? I mean, the fact that people are, are attacking a man who's innocent of undergoing this treatment because, you know, for whatever reason is really, I just find it really despicable. And I, I especially detest uh, the people like comedians, you know, like Saturday Night Live and people uh, like Trevor Noah of The Daily Show who are mocking uh, a man who is sick because of how poorly he's been treated. If any, if anyone knows anything, you know, uh, if we know anything about solitary confinement, um, we know that it ha it takes a great physical and mental toll on a person. So, you know, someone who's innocent that's been forced to undergo that treatment and, and is then mocked um, by so-called, you know, primetime comedians, I just find it, um, a dis I, I find it despicable and I find it, um, very telling about, you know, so-called U.S. pop culture and the sort of values it's trying to promote. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did an op-ed. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't really look good after a hangover, so I don't know how I'd look after a few years in, uh, in, uh, in right. What, I, I'd like to see how Megan McCain looks like if she's in a, sort of trapped in a room for even two days, you sure. know, I, it's just really, uh, I just, I get really angry about it, um, but you know, I—it's I, really part of what I would say uh, is a trend in cultural engineering in the past few years. I wrote about this in an op-ed for the anniversary of the Iraq War, which wasn't that long ago, about how there's been this effort to turn the U.S. and and you know other Western countries as well into nations of passive neocons, where basically you know neoconservatives, these sociopaths that want to start wars all over the world, um, are trying to culturally engineer us to be you know to have no empathy uh, for other people. Uh, and their suffering and to basically turn us in, in, into people like them, people, you know, like Hillary Clinton who laugh at, you know, mass murder in Libya and stuff like that. Um, yeah. this sort of, you know, cultural engineering we're seeing on these like primetime, you know, TV shows in the U.S. of trying to get people to mock, you know, uh, a man who's innocent and has been poorly, so poorly treated is re just really, uh, just really proves that, you know, there's, there's these efforts, uh, to culturally engineer uh, American and, and more broadly speaking, you know, Western society, um, you know, turn us into a bunch of passive neocons that support their wars and support, you know, um, you know, attacks on, on people who we should really be in solidarity with. Yeah, I mean, Suzanne Moore, who was writing in the New Statesman, which is about as far left in the UK as corporate media gets, it's to the left of the Guardian usually, called him a demented gnome. And there's been so much talk about, um, or discussion about, is Assange a journalist? And I think there's a fair amount to say about that. You know, he's not obviously publishing things in a, in a traditional way. And there's, there are differences between what he does and what, what we'd say with a capital J journalist does. But I think the, the key thing is, is that the corporate media has resoundingly, uh, responded to that question with a big fat, no, he's not a journalist. You know, CNN described him as an activist rather than a journalist, as did the Washington Post or Fox News or, or you know, you can choose whatever. I mean, the National Review, for instance, called him a, a petty, biased, hostile foreign actor. And I think the point is, is that they, oh my want God. To, they want to separate what Assange does from journalism so they can say that there is no precedent set 
or there's no, uh, you know, First Amendment issue here. I mean, less alone the fact that he's an Australian slash Ecuadorian living in an embassy in London, and yet seems to be able to be uh, hauled out of the embassy and taken to the U.S. That that is all like put a put a cast aside by the fact that he is not a journalist, apparently. You know, I find I find what you just brought up, um, you know, really telling about how a lot of people in, in corporate media really want to think that, you know, their definition of journalism, you know, it, it's really, it just shows it's really elitist. Like, you know, you have to have gone to these types of journalism schools and university, and you have to write, have written for specific outlets that we approve of, and you have to do this and that to conform to our definition of a journalist, to be in our club where, you know, people like, like, like us and the New York Times recognize you as a journalist with a capital J and all this stuff, right? Let's also keep in mind that a lot of these same outlets attacking Assange used to praise him, especially when WikiLeaks first started. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that the sort of, uh, turn, uh, you know, turnabout, you know, that this 180 that they've taken, uh, just really shows how, how fickle these people are. Um, and, and how much, you know, how elitist they are and how willing, um, how willing they are to throw someone under the bus if it furthers their own careers. Yeah, it kind of reminds me how, um, uh, Gary Webb in the 80s was smeared by the, uh, the entire U.S. establishment media, frankly. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that will take us into our next segment titled The Flashback Files, we, where we will be comparing, uh, the Assange smear campaign to what happened to Gary Webb in the late 90s. All right, this next segment we are calling the Flashback Files, and this is where we will be highlighting a story that happened years ago but still carries important relevance today. In keeping with the topic of Julian Assange's recent arrest, we will be, we will be comparing the smear campaign that has been launched by Ecuador's government as well as top Western media outlets aimed at discrediting Assange with a smear campaign levied against the late journalist Gary Webb after his expose of the U.S. government's dark role in fomenting the nation's crack, ab- uh, crack epidemic in the 1990s. In both campaigns, which were aimed at discrediting the messenger because they couldn't discredit the message. Media outlets worked hand-in-glove with intelligence agencies, revealing the decades-long, quote, productive relationship between agencies like the CIA and prominent Western media organizations. Uh, Something similar to what has happened to Assange, as, as we were just saying, Something similar to what has happened to Assange, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, Assange was someone who had been praised by many of the outlets now out to destroy him. Something similar also happened in the late 90s, as we've said, to journalist Gary Webb. Webb wrote the Dark Alliance series for the San Jose Mercury News uh, that linked the CIA and covert U.S. support for the Contras in Nicaragua to the U.S. crack epidemic happening and subsequently became the victim of a targeted smear campaign that destroyed his career, left him in financial ruin, and allegedly led to his death. In 2004, Webb was found with two bullet wounds to the back of the head. It was later revealed that much of the smear campaign that had targeted Webb had been done in coordination with the CIA, as revealed in a CIA document that was declassified in 2014, titled, quote, Managing a Nightmare, CIA Public Affairs and the Drug Conspiracy Story. That document described how the agency worked with, quote, a ground base of already productive relations with journalists and had to do surprisingly little to assist the effort to smear Webb and his reporting. The declassified document credited the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times for leading the effort to discredit Webb and his reporting. 
Webb would later say of his fall from grace, quote, I was winning awards, getting raises, lecturing college classes, appearing on TV shows, and judging journalism contests. And then I wrote some stories that made me realize how sadly misplaced my bliss had been. The reason I'd enjoyed such smooth sailing for so long hadn't been, as I'd assumed, because I was careful and diligent and good at my job. The truth was that in all those years, I hadn't written anything important enough to suppress, end quote. Now, years after the effort to smear Webb, we have seen a similar yet different effort to smear Assange. In contrast to what happened to Webb, the smears against Assange have been focused almost exclusively on him as a person and have been increasingly aimed at dehumanizing him. That's why a lot of the defense uh, of Assange recently from certain people uh, have begun with uh, phrases like, you don't have to like Assange as a person to disagree with what's happening him uh, with what's happening to him. But, you know, uh, I personally feel like a lot of those, quote, you know, defenses legitimize a lot of these efforts to dehumanize a man who we know for years has been deliberately targeted by the world's most powerful governments. But in Webb's case, a lot of the smears were aimed more at discrediting his now vindicated findings and his credibility as a reporter, you know, which worked for a time. But since Webb, uh, you know, Webb's work in the rise of online journalism uh, and uh, coupled with a decreased trust in mainstream media outlets, um, the smear tactics have, you know, shifted towards dehumanization. And, and we see this in Assange's case, you know, a man who committed no crime has been in solitary confinement for a year before then housed in a tiny room in the Ecuadorian embassy. A lot of the smear campaign focused on Assange now after his arrest, as we mentioned in the past segment, have focused on mocking his appearance and his physical condition, which is, is just really detestable when you consider how much this man has suffered. You know, show me anyone who has been in solitary confinement for a year with their every move and every word surveilled and recorded that looks camera ready when they are being manhandled and dragged out of a building by British police. Yeah, sure. I mean, why I thought this was so applicable today is that, I mean, I'm obviously not old enough to remember Gary Webb and the uh, Contra uh, CIA drug running scandal as it happened, but we do know that um, there has been a great deal of uh, convergence between intelligence and mainstream media. So, for instance, Oliver Boyd Barrett, an academic at Bowling Green State University, um, wrote a really great piece talking about the CIA infiltration into the media. For instance, Carl Bernstein of the Watergate uh, scandal in 1990, uh, 1977 revealed that over 400 US journalists for over 25 years had been employed by the CIA and that nearly every major news organization had been penetrated, and that was usually with the cooperation of the top uh, the top management. And it's not really clear if this still goes on. But certainly, following the mid-70s, there were many propaganda functions that were transferred from the CIA to more privately funded NGOs uh, through conduits such as the Ford Foundation or, you know, that Atlantic Council or the National Endowment for Democracy. And certainly in their book, Manufacturing Consents, Herman and Chomsky talk about just the enormous public relations efforts that uh, every branch of the military has, including thousands of people on the payroll who are there to try and promote the military's um, the military's image. Uh, the BBC, for instance, uh, in the UK, has worked closely with MI5, and MI5 actually, until at least 1989, we don't know if they still do it, but until at least 1989 vetted every BBC employee before they were hired for any sort of important job. And this is going on almost to this day in terms of uh, the convergence between 
the government and the media. So we see that today in the UK with the incredibly important story, in my opinion, of the, in the Integrity Initiative, which is this secretive government-sponsored, um, apparently very small, if you read the reports, uh, organization whose stated goal is to try to defend democracy against disinformation, specifically from Russia. But in reality, what they're doing is, uh, one, attacking Russia and arguing for a more bellicose foreign policy, and two, trying to undermine any leftist threats to the government. So we're, we have in a situation where the government is actually paying the secret services to try to undermine Jeremy Corbyn in this country by uh, providing propaganda against him. And the Integrity Initiative have these things called clusters, which include many of the most famous journalists from the most established outlets like the Times and the Daily Telegraph, who are working closely with the secret services to push a certain narrative. And we saw that in Spain, which is even more worrying because the Integrity Initiative works in at least 13 countries, one of which is Spain. And we saw the II not wanting uh, Colonel Pedro Banos to become uh, a defense minister in Spain. And so they went into overdrive and uh, uh, really uh, manufactured a propaganda blitz, not only in the UK, but also in Spain. And that blitz was that. Uh, uh, large enough and uh, rowdy enough to block Banyos's uh, promotion to that point. Banyos, by the way, had been saying he was basically uh, a dove in terms of Russia. He was saying we need to have more dialogue rather than uh, rather than increase uh, warlike actions. And for that, that was just uh, absolutely uh, abhorrent to the, the initiative, who went, really went after him. Well, you know, um, talking about whether or not this is continuing today. You know, this collaboration between intelligence agencies and news organizations, you know, the fact that the Integrity Initiative hasn't been an international scandal tells you, I think, that that relationship continues to today. <laughs> um, because the fact that, you know, you have, you have, um, you know, decades ago, it would have been a huge story, you know, if it was proven definitively with documents, as, as is the case in this scandal, that, um, you know, so many top, ostensibly nonpartisan journalists are on the payroll of this organization that is actively working uh, to argue for certain policies and in, uh, in, in, in seeking to smear specific politicians, uh, specifically Jeremy Corbyn, right? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, you know, in in a, what we would con you know consider an ideal sane world, I mean, that would be a scandal over the news. In the U.S., uh, cable news has not covered the Integrity Initiative. I think that tells you... Um, a lot about um, <laughs> um, this collaborative relationship that, uh, you know, was evident in, in Gary Webb's time uh, and, and during the church committee revelations uh, in the 70s and all that, you know, it still exists. Um, and I think a really clear indication too, at least, um, you know, moving moving to the U.S. now, um, of that existing in U.S. mainstream media organizations um Let's just take a look at Russiagate coverage. You know, after the uh, the, the tr uh, Trump won the election in 2016, we saw the former uh, director of national intelligence, James Clapper, a known liar, uh, obviously committed perjury. I think not once but twice uh, in, in in testifying to Congress. He was invited on, uh, I think it was CNN, um, as as an analyst. Um, John Brennan, who was director of of the, of the CIA under Obama. Uh, also went on to mainstream cable news as an analyst talking about Russiagate specifically and talking about the president um, specifically. 
Um, you also have NBC News um, hiring Ken Delanian, who used to write for the LA Times, but the LA Times actually fired him because he was found to have a very productive collaborative relationship with the CIA and was actually working as a CIA spokesman, basically. And instead of being blacklisted and fired for that, he was rewarded with a cushy NBC cable news job. So I think that tells you <laughs> pretty much all you need to know about whether or not this, this relationship continues today. I mean, we also have other really prominent journalists in the U.S. like Anderson Cooper, who was known to work uh, for the CIA uh, prior to working for CNN. Um, does that relationship still continue with Anders for Anderson Cooper? Who knows? But it's really hard to get to the top of, of cable news. Uh, and as you noted for the BBC, right, um, you know, how they had to be vetted by the intelligence service. Um, I feel like that's a sort of... Um, same relationship in, is, is pretty clear in the U.S. as well. And we also know that, um, you know, um, the interview we'll be doing for Mint Press next week is with Lisa Peace, who wrote about um, the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. During that time, and in, 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 in her book, she talks about how CBS News um, had a very, very close relationship with the CIA and was involved in all sorts of cover-ups, not just in the case of the RFK assassination, but in other cases as well. Um and so we see a lot of that continuing to today. Um, and I, and that, you know, has really been used to shape coverage. Um, another thing that's worth talking about in the context uh, of, you know, this collaboration uh, in the United States is the fact that the CIA has been known uh, to put per its agents uh, as professors in journalism schools, at least since the 1980s. There was also, of course, um, probably the best known uh, CIA operation in this regard, known as uh, Operation or Project Mockingbird, um, which allegedly began in the 1950s. Um, under the oversight of Alan Dulles, um, who went on to be CIA director, was first OSS director, um, and was really involved in, in sort of cultivating these productive relationships that have continued for decades. And of course, as that uh, CIA document from the late 90s that was declassified in 2014 shows, those, quote, productive relationships are still openly admitted in CIA documents decades later. So I think it would be really naive... Uh, especially considering all this information that's come out, you know, the integrity initiative scandal and all that sort of stuff, to assume that these operations don't continue. And also, let's remember, in the case of Julian Assange, um, Julian Assange really made the CIA really angry when he released Vault 7, which was, you know, probably not uh, for most uh, people the most famous WikiLeaks release, but it was arguably the most damaging to the U.S. government. Um, because it really limited the CIA's hacking ability because it sort of exposed um, a lot of the programs that it had going on covertly. And after that release, you know, you had Mike uh, Pompeo, now Secretary of State, previously CIA director, you know, he had called WikiLeaks a foreign uh, hostile intelligence service, right? And then... Um, and, and things like that uh, going on. So we know that the CIA uh, is obviously out for Assange. So I don't think it's any surprise to see the sort of, um, you know, these these smear tactics that are just so detestable um, being used against Assange um, because we know that uh, these organizations that are really shaping how mainstream media reports on the issues um, are pushing it towards this because, um, honestly, um, there's a reason that trust in the mainstream media is so low and people, um, you know, want truth now more than ever. And the fact that they're, you know, these organizations are veering so far away from that and, and doing things that are just, you know, really and focusing on things that are just, you know, oftentimes really absurd, you know, like Assange's hygiene and all this stuff. Yeah. I think that really tells you who is shaping the narrative here.
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of partisan smear outlets, uh, smear artists out there. And one of them I really wanted to talk to and talk about today is Luke Harding. I'm glad you brought him up because on our next segment, which we call The Wall of Shame, Luke Harding is our first inductee. So now we're going to introduce the wall of shame, where each week we're going to take someone from the world of politics or media and expose them as the, de- as the deplorable they are. And the inaugural member to be pinned up on the wall is a journalist, and I use that term liberally, Luke Harding. Harding is the English journalist who has been in the news lately, or at least his work has. In December, he managed to get The Guardian to publish a story claiming that Julian Assange met Paul Manafort and a number of unspecified Russians in the Ecuadorian embassy multiple times between 2013 and 2016, which, according to Harding, put the 2016 election in a completely new light. The story was picked up across the media on NBC, CNN, The Washington Post, USA Today, Bloomberg, tons of other outlets, but it immediately did not uh, pass the smell test. How could anyone, let alone Donald Trump's campaign advisor, waltz into the most heavily monitored building in the most heavily monitored city in the world many times? Manafort, WikiLeaks, and the Ecuadorian government all rejected the claims, and the story was almost immediately walked back by The Guardian, with the editorial team rewriting it to change the tense of the of the entire article to the conditional, and even adding in words like hoax and alleged into the article. Worse still, Harding's source was almost certainly Fernando Biabicencio, a convicted libeler and forger who had burned the Guardian before passing them fake documents, which they published and later had to apologise for. The story completely fell apart, but the Guardian has still not uh, retracted it. Harding has also had an ongoing and, bi- and a bitter feud with Assange. He wrote the highly critical biography of the WikiLeaks editor that was subsequently turned into the movie The Fifth Estate, which Assange described as a massive propaganda attack on him. Honestly, the, this Manafort story, uh, to me, is just the latest, and I would, you know, you could argue the most egregious example of Harding's brand of so-called journalism that really amounts to, you know, making the facts fit a narrative that benefits his personal brand. And, you know, I mean, the claim that Manafort met with Assange, um, if you actually consider it, it is so absurd, given the fact, the document, in fact, that Manafort went to Ecuador to meet with Lenin Moreno right after Moreno won the election to discuss, wait for it, revoking Assange's asylum so he could be extradited to the United States. <laughs> anyway, uh, I know, isn't that crazy? So anyway, uh, uh, this type of journalistic malpractice we've seen with Harding before. Um, prior to the Manafort story, we saw it with uh, Harding's supposedly explosive Russiagate book uh, about collusion, which won him all lots of, uh, you know, tons of mainstream media attention, a spot on the New York Times bestseller list, despite the fact that the evidence for his thesis of his book is so threadbare that he couldn't even defend the conclusion claims during interviews. Yeah, I know. Uh, It's absolutely crazy. Um, If you're talking about the interviews, I think you might be uh, referencing the Aaron Maté interview on The Real News, where Harding... Oh, I am! Yeah, he's a a real... (laughs) Russiagate pusher, and he went head to head with the probably the uh, one of the most high-profile Russiagate skeptics, Aaron Maté, to uh, promote his book *Collusion*. 
But Massey kept just fact-checking him all the time, and eventually to the point where not only could Harding not prove his entire thesis, but he actually couldn't even uh, prove the title of his book, Collusion. And by the end of it, uh, Harding just simply uh, disconnected and left the chat in a hub, in a total huff, and just ran away, basically. Not only yeah, that, and that tells you a lot about his integrity as a reporter, right? Sure. And, and how deserving his spot on the New York Times bestseller list was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Harding also, uh, one other story that Harding's been involved with was uh, the Svetlana Lokova case. She's a Russian academic that was accused by Harding in The Guardian of working as a honeypot or as a, a Russian spy for General Finn, um, who was, uh, who's been in the news quite a lot. She's faced death threats and had her life basically ruined because of this, and this is still not being retracted, even though pretty much the entire media has uh, has basically apologized to her. I saw the New York Times offered their deepest uh, and most sincere uh, sympathies to look over for what she's had to go through. But it seems that The Guardian, uh, this is just another case of them getting away with uh, writing whatever they want. Well, you know, Harding has a documented tendency as well, as we'll get to in a moment, about seeing Russian spies pretty much anywhere. Um, but, you know, uh, going back, you know, to about Russiagate specifically, I think it's important to point out that there were, you know, um, when Russiagate first got big and all that and got a lot of attention, there were a lot of, you know, good journalists with, you know, decades of really good, you know, good reporting and, and strong reputations that got wrapped up in Russiagate just because of how, you know, disillusioned and angry, uh, you know, they were after Trump won the 2016 election. Yeah. But it is really important to point out that Harding is not one of those. So, uh, as I, <laughs> right. So as I mentioned earlier, Harding, um, has actually been engaged in this type of, uh, behavior that he claims is journalism for quite a long time. Um, including when he plagiarized large excerpts of work written by journalist Mark Ames and Yasha Levine, who were writing for The Exile, an English language, uh, but Russia-based outlet at the time that Luke Harding was in charge of Gar uh, the Guardian's Moscow Bureau, which was from 2007 to 2011. And actually, uh, now I think it would actually be a really good time to look back at Harding's uh, writings from that time because it tells you a lot about how he operates and uh, why he's been such a prominent voice um, in, in Russiagate now and, and more recently with the Manafort, um, the Manafort story. So um, after leaving uh, the Moscow, uh, leaving Moscow and not working for the Guardian. Uh, as being based in Russia anymore, Harding wrote this book and he titled it, quote, um, Mafia State, How One Reporter Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia. And I just want to walk our listeners through the the evidence of how Harding claims that he became this, you know, uh, enemy number one uh, of the Kremlin while he was in Moscow. So everything I'm going to talk about right now, this is taken from a Guardian article that Harding wrote about his uh, sort of to promote this book. And I really encourage everyone listening to look it up because it is a very amusing read. Um, and also so they can see that I'm not making this up. Um, for those interested, the article is called Enemy of the State, How Luke Harding Became the Reporter That Russia Hated. So in this article, Harding claims that Russia's uh, intelligence and security services targeted him, targeted him because he wrote, you know, he mentions two reports actually in the article that he wrote, um, that the Kremlin didn't like. Um, and, you know, in, in, in these reports, of course, include the report he plagiarized as well. So anyway, uh, how did Russia target Harding, you may ask? Well, here's a brief summary of, taken from this Guardian article uh, I, I'm mentioning, and I really, really hope you read. So first, um, 
One day Harding found a window open in his home without explanation. Then another day, a woman knocked on his door and when she answered, she walked away and didn't say anything. But in Harding's mind, it was impossible that she had knocked on the wrong door by mistake. Then in an airport, just a few weeks later, a man in a leather jacket pats Harding on the back and tells him his, ja his jacket was not you know, fitted properly. Harding then writes that leather jackets are, quote, the unmistakable uniform of the KGB spook. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I, this is why I'm telling people to look up the Guardian article. It's all there. Um, yeah, so after being patted on the back by this man in this, you know, really nefarious leather jacket, um, Harding runs to the public bathroom and strips, I kid you not, he strips half naked because he's convinced that the man planted a bugging device on him. Harding, of course, doesn't find um, a bugging device, but he says that is not necessarily proof a bugging device isn't there because, as he reflects, he doesn't know what bugging devices look like. Next, he finds that a battery is missing from his home's alarm system. Then another day, his central heating stops working. Harding, of course, blames Russian intelligence for all of these mishaps because, of course, nothing else could explain all these strange coincidences. It's also worth pointing out that in the same article um, that I'm quote that I'm I'm drawing from here, um, Harding notes that during this time he was actually delving deep into WikiLeaks releases about the Russian government that showed that the Russian government or, or that portrayed the Russian government in a negative light, and according to Harding, made it look like a mafia state and is allegedly. You know, these WikiLeaks releases and Harding's work on them is allegedly part of why all these devious acts were carried out against Harding. So, you know, that's really interesting to consider, uh, considering, uh, given Harding's more recent work on Manafort and Assange and Russiagate. Um, so, you know, to sum up, I would just say that, you know, Harding's past and his his current uh, and more recent behavior, you know, is just another example and a particularly shameful example um, of a journalist whose career has benefited from Assange and WikiLeaks. And then, you know, someone who, after receiving that benefit, turned on them when it suited them to promote their own personal brand and careers. And I feel like that is why it is really fitting uh, that he be our first Wall of Shame inductee. Thank you for listening to the very first edition of Mintcast, the new podcast from Mint Press News. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from to stay fresh and keep up to date with the news they don't want you to see. Also, if you like this podcast, consider signing up for Mint Press's newsletter or becoming a patron at patreon.com. Be sure to check out our next week's episode where Whitney will interview author and researcher Lisa Pease and the surprising links between the Robert F. Kennedy assassinations and the fight for Palestinian rights. For Whitney Webb and myself, see you next time. Stay fresh.